This is the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. Anthony Burgess was one of the most important and prolific British writers of the 20th century. Most famous for his dystopian vision, A Clockwork Orange, he wrote 33 novels, 25 books of non-fiction, and over 250 musical compositions. This podcast aims to illuminate Burgess's life and work, and his connections to other 20th century literature, film and music. So join us as we explore the world of Anthony Burgess. In this special Christmas episode of the podcast, we're handing the microphone over to Anthony Burgess himself as he reads Charles Dickens's festive classic, A Christmas Carol. This recording was found in the audio collections in the archives at the Burgess Foundation in Manchester. Although many of the cassette tapes in the collection have Burgess reading his own work, it's unusual to find him reading the work of other writers. This recording also stands out because of its high quality. While it's by no means a professional studio recording, the sound quality indicates that this was made using higher specification equipment than Burgess's own portable tape recorder. Burgess also seems to have used his own record collection to provide incidental music. The reason for this recording is unknown, though there are other tapes in the collection of Burgess reading to his son, Paolo Andrea. It's possible that this recording is associated with Burgess's involvement in marking the centenary of Dickens's death in 1970. He attended a lavish Dickensian banquet at York University in Toronto, at which he gave a talk on Dickens as playwright and actor, with, as Burgess remembers in his autobiography, Paolo Andrea in the role of Tiny Tim, raised to the table on four telephone directories. Whatever the reason for this recording, it's presented now as a Christmas present for all of our listeners. Merry Christmas from everyone at the Burgess Foundation. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year, on Christmas Eve... Old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. It was cold, bleak, biting weather, foggy withal, and he could hear the people in the court outside go wheezing up and down, beating their hands upon their breasts and stamping their feet upon the pavement stones to warm them. The city clocks had only just gone three, but it was quite dark already. It had not been light all day, and candles were flaring in the windows of the neighbouring offices like ruddy smears upon the palpable brown air. The fog came pouring into every chink and keyhole and was so dense without that although the court was of the narrowest, the houses opposite were mere phantoms. To see the dingy cloud come drooping down, obscuring everything, one might have thought that nature lived hard by and was brewing on a large scale. The door of Scrooge's counting house was open that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, who in a dismal little cell beyond the sort of tank was copying letters. Scrooge had a very small fire, but the clerk's fire was so very much smaller that it looked like one coal. But he couldn't replenish it, for Scrooge kept the coal box in his room, and so surely as the clerk came in with the shovel, the master predicted that it would be necessary for them to part. Wherefore the clerk put on his white comforter and tried to warm himself at the candle, in which effort, not being a man of a strong imagination, he failed. 
A Merry Christmas, Uncle! God save you! cried a cheerful voice. It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew, who came upon him so quickly that this was the first intimation he had of his approach. Bah! said Scrooge. Humbug! He had so heated himself with rapid walking in the fog and frost, this nephew of Scrooge's, that he was all in a glow. His face was ruddy and handsome, his eyes sparkled, and his breath smoked again. Christmas a humbug, Uncle, said Scrooge's nephew. You don't mean that, I'm sure. I do, said Scrooge. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then, returned the nephew gaily. What right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Scrooge, having no better answer ready on the spur of the moment, said, Bah! again, and followed it up with, Humbug! Don't be cross, uncle, said the nephew. What else can I be, returned the uncle, when I live in such a world of fools as this? Merry Christmas! Out upon Merry Christmas! What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself older, but not an hour richer? A time for balancing your books and having every item in a, to a round dozen of months presented dead against you? If I could work my will, said Scrooge indignantly, every idiot who goes around with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. He should. Uncle, pleaded the nephew. Nephew, returned the uncle sternly. Keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. Keep it, repeated Scrooge's nephew. But you, but you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone then, said Scrooge. Much good may it do you. Much good it has ever done you. There are many things from which I might have derived good by which I have not profited, I dare say, returned the nephew, Christmas among the rest. But I am sure I have always thought of Christmas time when it comes round, apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be apart from that, as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time, the only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, Uncle... Though it's never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good and will do me good, and I say, God bless it. The clerk in the tank involuntarily applauded. Becoming immediately sensible of the impropriety, he poked the fire and extinguished the last frail spark forever. Let me hear another sound from you, said Scrooge, and you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. You're quite a powerful speaker, sir, he added, turning to his nephew. I wonder you don't go into Parliament. Don't be angry, Uncle. Come dine with us tomorrow. Scrooge said that he would see him in... Yes, indeed he did. He went the whole length of the expression and said that he would see him in that extremity first. But why, cried Scrooge's nephew, why? Why did you get married, said Scrooge? Because I fell in love. Because you fell in love, growled Scrooge, as if that were the, the only one thing in the whole world more ridiculous than a Merry Christmas. Good afternoon. Nay, Uncle, but you never came to see me before that happened. Why give it as a reason for not coming now? Good afternoon, said Scrooge. I want nothing from you. I ask nothing of you. Why cannot we be friends? Good afternoon, said Scrooge. I am sorry with all my heart to find you so resolute. We have never had any quarrel to which I have been a party, but I have made the trial in homage to Christmas, and I'll keep my Christmas humour to the last. So a Merry Christmas, Uncle. Good afternoon, said Scrooge. And a Happy New Year. Good afternoon, said Scrooge. His nephew left the room without an angry word, notwithstanding. He stopped at the outer door to bestow the greetings of the season on the clerk, who, cold as he was, was warmer than Scrooge, for he returned them cordially. There's another fellow, muttered Scrooge, who overheard him. My clerk, with 15 shillings a week and a wife and family, talking about a Merry Christmas. 
I'll retire to Bedlam. Foggier yet and colder. Piercing, searching, biting cold. If the good St. Dunstan had but nipped the evil spirit's nose with a touch of such weather as that instead of using his familiar weapons, then indeed he would have roared to lusty purpose. The owner of one scant young nose, gnawed and mumbled by the angry cold as bones are gnawed by dogs, stooped down at Scrooge's keyhole to regale him with a Christmas carol, but at the first sound of... God bless ye, very gentlemen, may nothing you did me. Scrooge seized the ruler with such energy of action. The singer fled in terror, leaving the keel to the fog and even more congenial frost. At length, the hour of shutting up the counting house arrived. With an ill will, Scrooge dismounted from his stool and tacitly admitted the fact to the expectant clerk in the tank, who instantly snuffed his candle out and put on his hat. You'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose, said Scrooge. If quite convenient, sir. It's not convenient, said Scrooge, and it's not fair. If I was to stop half a crown for it, you'd think yourself ill-used, I'll be bound. The clerk smiled faintly. And yet, said Scrooge, you don't think me ill-used when I pay a day's wages for no work? The clerk observed that it was only once a year. A poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December, said Scrooge, buttoning his greatcoat to the chin. But I suppose you must have the whole day. Be all the earlier next morning. Scrooge walked home through the frost and fog, put his key in his hole in the hole of the door and opened the door and went in. He locked himself in. He double-locked himself in. Secured against others, he took out his cravat, put on his dressing gown and slippers and his nightcap and sat down before the fire to take his gruel. It was a very low fire indeed, nothing on, nothing at all on such a bitter night. He was obliged to sit close to it and brood over it before he could extract the least sensation of warmth from such a handful of fuel. The fireplace was an old one, built by some Dutch merchant long ago and paved all round with quaint Dutch tiles designed to illustrate the scriptures. There were Cain's and Abel's, Pharaoh's daughters, Queen's of Sheba, angelic messengers descending through the air on clouds like feather beds, Abraham's, Belshazzar's, apostles putting off to sea in butter boats, hundreds of figures to attract his thoughts. And yet... In them all, he saw a face that he had not seen for seven years. The face of a man seven years dead who came like the ancient prophet's rod and swallowed up the whole. It was as if each smooth tile had been a blank at first, with power to shape some picture on its surface from the disjointed fragments of his thoughts. And there was only a copy of old Marley's head on everyone. Marley, his former partner, as cold as icy as unforgiving, as parsimonious, as ungenerous as himself, dead seven years, and now alive again in effigy on the tiles of his own fireplace. Humbug, said Scrooge, and walked across the room. After several turns, he sat down again. As he threw his head back in the chair, his glance happened to rest upon a bell, a disused bell, that hung in the room and communicated for some purpose, now forgotten with a chamber in the highest story of the building. It was with great astonishment that he saw this bell be the swing, and it swang, and it swung, and so did every bell in the house. This might have lasted half a minute or a minute, but it seemed an hour. The bells ceased as they had begun together. Uh, they were succeeded by a clanking noise, deep down below as if some person were dragging a heavy chain over the casks in the wine merchant's cellar. Scrooge then remembered to have heard that ghosts in haunted houses were described as dragging chains. 
The cellar door flew open with a booming sound, and then he heard the noise much louder on the floors below. Then coming up the stairs, then coming straight towards his door. It's humbug still, said Scrooge. I won't believe it. His colour changed, though, when without a pause it came on through the heavy door and passed into the room before his eyes. Upon its coming in, the dying flame leapt up as though it cried, I know him! Marley's ghost! And fell again. The same face, the very same. Marley in his pigtail, his usual waistcoat, tights and boots, the tassels on the latter bristling like his pigtail, and his coat shirts and the hair upon his head. The chain he drew was clasped about his middle. It was long and wound about him like a tail, and it was made, for Scrooge observed it closely, of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, and heavy purses wrought in steel. His body was transparent, so that Scrooge, observing him and looking through his waistcoat, could see the two buttons on his coat behind. Scrooge had often heard it said that Marley had no bowels, but he had never believed it until now. How now? How now, said Scrooge, caustic and cold as ever. What do you want with me? March! Who are you? Ask me who I was. Who were you then, said Scrooge, raising his voice. You're particular for the shade? In life I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Can you, can you sit down, asked Scrooge, looking doubtfully at him. I can. Do it then. Scrooge asked the question because he didn't know whether a ghost so transparent might find himself in a condition to take a chair, and felt that in the event of its being impossible, it might involve the necessity of an embarrassing explanation. But the ghost sat down on the opposite side of the fireplace as if he were quite used to it. You don't believe in me, observed the ghost. I don't, said Scrooge. What evidence would you have of my reality beyond that of your senses? I don't know, said Scrooge. Why do you doubt your senses? Because, said Scrooge, a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. You see this toothpick, said Scrooge, returning quickly to the charge, and wishing that it were only for a second to divert the vision's stony gaze from himself. I do. You're not looking at it. But I see it, nevertheless. Well, I have but to swallow this and be for the rest of my days persecuted by a legion of goblins, all of my own creation. Humbug, I tell you, humbug! Oh! The phantom took off the bandage round its head as if it were to wear it, to, 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 to warm to wear indoors, and its lower jaw dropped down upon its breast. Scrooge fell upon his knees. Mercy, he said, dreadful apparition, why do you trouble me? Man of the worldly mind, do you believe in me or not? I do, I must, but why do spirits walk the earth, and why do they come to me? It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide, and if that spirit got, goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the world. Oh, woe is me, and witness what he cannot share, but might have shared on earth and turned to happiness. You are fettered, said Scrooge, trembling. Tell me why. I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on of my own free will and of my own free will. I wore it. Is it pattern strange to you? 
Or would you know the weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself? It was as full, as heavy, and as long as this seven Christmas Eves ago. You have laboured on it since. It is a ponderous chain. Oh, Jacob, cried Scrooge imploring. Oh, Jacob Marley, tell me more. Speak comfort to me, Jacob. I have none to give. None to give. Oh, my spirit never walked beyond our counting house. In life, my spirit never roved beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing hole, and weary journeys lie before me. Seven years dead, mused Scrooge, and travelling all the time. The whole time, no rest, no peace, incessant torture of remorse. Oh... Oh, captive bound and double-ironed, not to know that ages of incessant labour by immortal creatures for this earth must pass into eternity before the good of which it is susceptible is at all developed. Not to know that any Christian spirit working kindly in its little sphere, whatever it may be, will find its mortal life too short for its vast means of usefulness. Not to know that no space of regret can make amends for one life's opportunity misused. Yet such was I, oh, such was I! But you are always a good man of business, Jacob. Business! Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The ditties of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. At this time of the rolling year, I suffer most. Why did I walk through crowds of fellow beings with my eyes turned down and never raise them once to that blessed star which led the wise men to a poor abode? Were there no poor homes to which its light would have conducted me? Hear me! My time is nearly gone! I will, says Scrooge, but don't be hard upon me. Don't be flowery, Jacob, pray. How it is that I appear before you in a shape that you cannot see during the day, but can see now, I may not tell. I have sat invisible beside you many and many a day. That is no light part of my penance. I am here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate, a chance and a hope of my procuring Ebenezer Scrooge. You are always a good friend to me, said Scrooge. Thank you. You will be haunted by three spirits. Is that the chance and hope you mentioned, Jacob? It is. I think I'd rather not. Without their visits, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. Expect the first tomorrow when the bell tolls one. I could not take them all at once and have it over, Jacob. Expect the second on the next night at the same hour, the third upon the next night when the last stroke of twelve has ceased to vibrate. Look to see me no more, and look that for your own sake you remember what has passed between us. When it had said these words, the spectre took its wrapper from the table and bound it round its head. It walked backward from him, and at every step it took, the window raised itself a little, so that when the spectre reached it, it was wide open. And on the raising of the spirit's hand, Scrooge became sensible of confused noises in the air, incoherent sounds of lamentation and regret, wailings inexpressibly sorrowful and self-accusatory. The spectre, after listening for a moment, joined in the mournful dirge and floated out upon the bleak Dark night, the air filled with phantoms, wandering hither and thither in restless haste and moaning as they went. Every one of them wore chains like Marley's ghost, every one. And then the creatures faded into mist, or mist enshrouded them. Scrooge closed the window and examined the door by which the ghost had entered. 
It was double locked as he had locked it with his own hands and the bolts were undisturbed. He tried to say, Humbug! but stopped at the first syllable. And being from the emotion he had undergone or the fatigues of the day or his glimpse of the invisible world or the dull conversation of the ghost or the lateness of the hour, much in need of repose, he went straight to bed without undressing and fell asleep upon the instant. When Scrooge awoke, it was so dark that, looking out of bed, he could scarcely distinguish the transparent window from the opaque walls of his chamber. He was endeavouring to pierce the darkness with his ferret eyes when the chimes of a neighbouring church struck the four quarters. So he listened for the hour. To his great astonishment, the heavy bell went on from six to seven, and from seven to eight, and regularly up to twelve, then stopped. Twelve, it was past two when he went to bed. The clock was wrong. An icicle must have got into the works. Twelve. He touched the spring of his repeater watch to correct this most preposterous clock. Its rapid little pulse beat twelve and stopped. It isn't possible, said Scrooge. I can't have slept through a whole day and far into another night. It isn't possible that anything has happened to the sun and this is twelve at noon. The idea being an alarming one, he scrambled out of bed and groped his way to the window. He was obliged to rub the frost off the, with the sleeve of his dressing gown before he could see anything, and could see very little then. All he could make out was that it was still very foggy and extremely cold, and, and there was no noise of people running to and fro and making a great stir, as there unquestionably would have been if night had beaten off bright day and taken possession of the world. Scrooge went to bed again and thought and thought and thought it all, all over and over and over and could make nothing of it. The more he thought, the more perplexed he was. And the more he endeavoured not to think, the more he thought. Marley's ghost bothered him exceedingly. Every time he resolved within himself, after mature inquiry, that it was all a dream, his mind flew back again like a strong spring released to its first position and presented the same problem to be worked all through. Was it a dream or not? Scrooge lay in this state until the chime had gone three quarters more. When he remembered on a sudden that the ghost had warned him of a visitation when the bell tolled one. He resolved to lie awake until the hour was past, and considering that he could no more go to sleep than go to heaven, this was perhaps the wisest resolution in his power. The quarter was so long that he was more than once convinced he must have sunk into a doze unconsciously and missed the clock. At length it broke upon his listening ear. A quarter past, said Scrooge. Half past, said Scrooge. A quarter to it, said Scrooge. The hour itself, said Scrooge, triumphantly, and nothing else. He spoke before the hour bell sounded, which it now did with a deep, dull, hollow, melancholy one. Light flashed up in the room upon the instant, and the curtains of his bed were drawn. The curtains of his bed were drawn aside, I tell you, by a hand. Not the curtains at his feet, nor the curtains at his back, but those to which his face was addressed. The curtains of his bed were drawn aside. And Scrooge, starting up into a half-recumbent attitude, found himself face to face with the unearthly visitor who drew them, as close to it as I am now to you, and I am standing in the spirit at your elbow. It was a strange figure, like a child, yet not so like a child as like an old man viewed through some supernatural medium which gave him the appearance of having receded from the view and being diminished to a child's proportions. Its hair was white as with age, and yet the face had not a wrinkle in it, and the tenderest bloom was on the skin. The arms were long and muscular, the hands the same, as if its hold were of uncommon strength. But the strangest thing about it was that from the crown of its head there sprung a bright, clear jet of light, by which all this was visible, and which was doubtless the occasion of its using, in its duller moments, a great extinguisher for a cap, which it's now held under its arm. 
Are you the spirit, sir, whose coming was foretold to me? asked Scrooge. I am. Who and what are you? I am the ghost of Christmas past. Long past? No, your past. Perhaps Scrooge could not have told anybody why, if anybody could have asked him, but he had a special desire to see the spirit in his cap and begged him to be covered. What? exclaimed the ghost. Would you so soon put out with worldly hands the light I give? Is it not enough that you are one of those whose passions made this cap and forced me through whole trains of years to wear it low upon my brow? What do you want? Your welfare, your reclamation. Take heed, rise, and walk with me. And Scrooge, against his will, took the spirit by the hand. And then they found themselves outside the window, flying through the air, over the city, over the dark, dismal city, through the night. And then Scrooge saw something he thought he would never see again. They had, that moment, passed through the busy thoroughfares of a city, where shadowy passengers passed and repassed, where shadowy carts and coaches battled for the way, and all the strife and tumult of a real city were. It was made plain enough by the dressings of the shops that here, too, it was Christmas time again, but it was evening, and the streets were lighted up. They sailed through the air, making a palpable wind behind them. Then the ghost stopped at a certain warehouse door and asked Scrooge if he knew it. Know it, said Scrooge. I was apprenticed here. They went in. At sight of an old gentleman in a Welsh wig, sitting behind such a high desk, that if he'd been two inches taller, he must have knocked his head against the ceiling, Scrooge cried in greatest excitement, Why, it's old Fezziwig! Bless his heart, it's Fezziwig alive again! Old Fezziwig laid down his pen and looked up at the clock, which pointed to the hour of seven. He rubbed his hands, adjusted his capacious waistcoat, laughed all over himself from his shoes to his organ of benevolence, and called out in a comfortable, oily, rich, fat, jovial voice, Yo-ho there, Ebenezer, Dick! Scrooge's former self, now grown a young man, came briskly in, accompanied by his fellow apprentice. Dick Wilkins, to be sure, said Scrooge to the ghost. Bless me, there he is. He was very much attached to me, was Dick. Poor Dick. Dear, dear, dear. You're my boy, said Fezziwig. No more work tonight, Christmas Eve, Dick. Christmas, Ebenezer. Let's have the shutters up before a man can say Jack Robinson. Hilly-ho, cried old Fezziwig, skipping down from the high desk with wonderful agility. Clear away, my lads, and let's have lots of room here. Hilly-ho, Dick. Cheer up, Ebenezer. Clear away? There was nothing they wouldn't have cleared away, or couldn't have cleared away. Old Fezziwig looked on benevolently. It was all done in a minute. Every movable was packed off as if it were dismissed from public life forever. The floor was swept and watered, the lamps were tri- trimmed, fuel was heaped upon the fire, and the warehouse was as snug and warm and dry and bright a ballroom as you would desire to see upon a winter's night. In came a fiddler with a music book and went up to the lofty desk and made an orchestra of it and tuned like fifty stomach aches. In came Mrs. Fezziwig. One vast substantial smile. In came the three Miss Fezziwigs, beaming and lovable. In came the six young followers whose hearts they broke. In came all the young men and women employed in the business. In came the housemaid with her cousin, the baker. In came the cook with her brother's particular friend, the milkman. In came the boy from over the way, who was suspected of not having bored enough from his master, trying to hide himself behind the girl from next door but one. In they all came, twenty couples at once, dancing, dancing, hands half round and back again the other way, down the middle and up again, round and round in various stages of affectionate grouping, old top couple always turning up in the wrong place, new top couple starting off again as soon as they got there, all top couples at last, not a bottom one to help them. When this result was brought about, 
Old Fezziwig clapped his hands to stop the dance, cried out, Well done! And the fiddler plunged his hot face into a pot of porter, especially provided for that purpose. But scorning rest upon his reappearance, he instantly began again, though there were no dancers yet. As if the other fiddler had been carried home exhausted on a shutter, and he were a brand new man, resolved to beat him out of sight or perish. There were more dances, and there were forfeits, and more dances, and there was a cake, and there was negus, and there was a great piece of cold roast, and there was a great piece of cold boiled, and there were mince pies, and plenty and plenty of beer. And then the fiddler, an artful dog mind, came in with Sir Roger de Coverley. The old Fezziwig stood out to dance with Mrs. Fezziwig, top couple too, stiff piece of work cut out for them, three or four and twenty pair of partners, people who were not to be trifled with, people who would dance and had no notion of walking. But if they had been twice as many are four times, old Fezziwig would have been a match for them. When the clock struck eleven, the domestic ball broke up. Mr. and Mrs. Fezziwig took their stations, one on either side of the door, and shaking hands with every person individually as he or she went out, wished him or her a Merry Christmas, and then all went to bed. A small matter, said the ghost, to make these silly folks so full of gratitude. Small, echoed Scrooge. Why is it not? He has spent but a few pounds of your mortal money, three or four perhaps. Is that so much that he deserves this praise? It isn't that, said Scrooge. It isn't that spirit. He has the power to render us happy or unhappy, to make our service light or burdensome, a pleasure or a toil. Say that his power lies in words and looks in things so slight and insignificant that it is impossible to add and count them up. What then? The happiness he gives is quite as great as if it cost a fortune. What is the matter? asked the ghost. Not in particular, said Scrooge. Something, I think. No, no, I should just like to be able to say a word or two to my clerk just now. That's all. My time goes short, observed the spirit. Quick, 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 back, back, back. Time is very short. And then they were back. And the spirit dropped beneath, deep, deep down in the air. And under his own power, Scrooge found himself back in his room again. He was conscious of being exhausted and overcome by an irresistible drowsiness. And further, of being in his own bedroom. He gave the cap a parting squeeze in which his hand relaxed and had barely time to reel to bed before he sank into a heavy sleep. Awaking in the middle of a prodigiously tough snore and sitting up in bed to get his thoughts together, Scrooge had no occasion to be told that the bell was again upon the stroke of one. He felt that he was restored to consciousness in the right nick of time for the especial purpose of holding a conference with a second messenger dispatched to him through Jacob Marley's intervention. He was now prepared for almost anything, but he was not by any means prepared for nothing, and consequently, when the bell had struck one and no shape appeared, he was taken with a violent fit of trembling. Five minutes, ten minutes, a quarter of an hour went by, yet nothing came. All this time he lay upon his bed. The very core and centre of a blaze of ruddy light which streamed upon it when the clock proclaimed the hour, which, being only light, was more alarming than a dozen ghosts, as he was powerless to make out what it meant or what it would be at, and was sometimes apprehensive that it might be at that very moment an interesting case of spontaneous combustion, without having the consolation of knowing it. At last, however, he got up. He went to the source of the light. The light was shining from under the door of the next room. He shuffled in his slippers to this door, 
And at the moment that his hand was on the lock, a strange voice called him by his name and bade him enter. He obeyed. It was his own room. There was no doubt about that. But it, it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green, holly and ivy, that it looked a perfect grove. The crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe and ivy reflect, reflected back the light as if so many little mirrors had been scattered there. And such a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney as that dull petrification of a hearth that never known in Scrooge's time or Marley's or for many and many a winter season gone. Heaped on the floor to form a kind of throne were turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, great joints of beef, sucking pigs, long wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelfth-night cakes, and seething bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their delicious steam. In easy state upon that couch there sat a jolly giant, glorious to see, who bore a glowing torch in shape not unlike the horn of plenty, and held it up high up to shed its light on Scrooge as he came peeping round the door. Come in! Come in and know me better, man! I am the ghost of Christmas present! Look upon me! Scrooge reverently did so. He was clothed in one simple green robe, or mantle, bordered with white fur. The garment hung so loosely on the figure that its capacious breast was bare, as if disdaining to be warded or concealed by any artifice. Its feet, observable beneath the ample folds of the garment, were also bare, and on its head it wore no other covering than a holly wreath, set here and there with shining icicles. Its dark brown curls were long and free, free as its genial face, its sparkling eye, its open hand, its cheery voice its unconstrained demeanour and its joyful air. Girded round the middle was an antique scabbard, but no sword was in it, and the ancient sheath was eaten up with rust. You have never seen the like of me before. Never. I have never walked forth with the younger members of my family, meaning, for I am very young, my elder brothers born in these later years. I don't think I have. I'm afraid I have not. Have you had many brothers, Spirit? More than 1,800 said the ghost. A tremendous family to provide for. Spirit, conduct me where you will. I went forth last night on compulsion and I learnt a lesson which is working now. Tonight, if you have anything to teach me, let me profit by it. Touch my robe. Scrooge did as he was told and held it fast. And then, as before, they were flying through the air above the houses, above the chimney tops, smoking with their Christmas fires. And the steeples were calling good people all to church and chapel, and away they were coming through the streets, flocking in their best clothes and with their gayest faces. And then they came to a house. And Scrooge thought he recognised the house. It was Bob Cratchit's dwelling. And there was Bob Cratchit, and there was his family, all prepared for a glorious Christmas. Think of that. Bob had but 15 bob a week himself. He pocketed on Saturdays but 15 copies of his Christian name, and yet the ghost of Christmas present with his great fragrant torch blessed this four-roomed house. Then up rose Mrs. Cratchit, Cratchit's wife, dressed out but poorly in a twice-turned gown, but brave in ribbons, and then there was Belinda Cratchit, second of her daughters, also brave in ribbons, while Master Peter Cratchit plunged a fork into the saucepan of potatoes and getting the corners of his monstrous shirt collar, 
Bob's private property, conferred upon his son and heir in honour of the day, into his mouth, rejoiced to find himself so gallantly attired. And now two smaller Cratchits, boy and girl, came tearing in, screaming that outside the bakers they had smelt their goose. They knew it for their own, and basking in luxurious thoughts of sage and onion, these young Cratchits danced about the table and exalted Master Peter Cratchit to the skies, while he blew the fire until the slow potatoes bubbling up knocked loudly at the saucepan lid to be let out and peeled. Whatever has got your precious father then, said Mrs. Cratchit, and your brother Tiny Tim, and Martha weren't as late last Christmas day by half an hour. Here's Martha, mother, said a girl appearing as she spoke. Here's Martha, mother, cried the two young Cratchits. Hooray, there's such a goose, Martha. Why, bless your heart alive, my dear, how late you are, said Mrs. Cratchit kissing her a dozen times and taking off her shawl and bonnet for her with officious zeal. <coughs> We'd a deal of work to finish up last night, <coughs> cried the girl, and had to clear away this morning, Mother. Oh, your cough is bad. Come near the fire, my dear, and have a warm, Lord bless you. No, no, there's father coming, cried the two young Cratchits who were everywhere at once. Hide, Martha, hide! And in came Bob, and on his shoulder, Tiny Tim. Alas, for Tiny Tim, he bore a little crutch, and had his limbs supported by an iron frame. Why, where's our Martha? Not coming. Not coming! Not coming on Christmas Day! Martha didn't like to seem disappointed, even if it were only in joke. So she came up prematurely from behind the closet door and ran into his arms while the two young Cratchits hustled Tiny Tim and bore him off into the wash house that he might hear the pudding singing in the copper. And how did little Tiny Tim behave at school? At, at church, I mean, asked Mrs. Cratchit, when she had rallied Bob and his credulity, and Bob had hugged his daughter to his heart's content. As good as gold, said Bob, and better. Somehow he gets thoughtful sitting by himself so much, and thinks the strangest things you ever heard. He told me coming home that he hoped the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple, and it might be pleasant to them to remember, upon Christmas Day, who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. Bob's voice was tremulous and had tears in it when he told them this, and trembled more when he saw that he'd said that Tiny Tim was growing strong and healthy. His active little crutch was heard upon the floor, and back came Tiny Tim before another word was spoken, escorted by his brother and sister to his stool before the fire. And then Bob, turning up his cuffs, compounded some hot mixture in a jug with gin and lemons, and stirred it round and round and put it on the hob to simmer. Master Peter and the two young Cratchits went to fetch the goose, with which they soon returned in high procession. Such a bustle ensued that you might have thought a goose the rarest of all birds, a feathered phenomenon to which a black swan was a matter of course. And in truth, it was something very like it in that house. Mrs Cratchit made the gravy ready beforehand in a little saucepan, hissing hot. Master Peter mashed the potatoes with incredible vigour. Miss Belinda sweetened up the applesauce. Martha dusted the hot plates. Bob took Tiny Tim beside him in a tiny corner of the table. The two young Cratchits set chairs for everybody, not forgetting themselves, and mounting guard upon their posts, crammed spoons into their mouths, lest they should shriek for goose before their turn came to be helped. At last, the dishes were set on, and grace was said, and Mrs Cratchit, looking slowly all along the carving knife, prepared to plunge it into the breast. But when she did, and when the long-expected gush of stuffing issued forth, one murmur of delight arose all round the board, and even Tiny Tim, excited by the two young Cratchits, beat on the table with the handle of his knife and feebly cried, Hurrah! There never was such a goose. And the pudding after, the pudding, oh, what a wonderful pudding! Bob Cratchit said, and calmly too, that he regarded it as the greatest success achieved by Mrs Cratchit since their marriage. They took their tumblers and they drank. 
and the hot stuff from the jug went down as well in those cracked cups and glasses as well as golden gob goblets would have done. And Bob served it out with beaming looks while the chestnuts on the fire sputtered and crackled noisily. Then Bob proposed, A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us. God bless us, everyone, said Tiny Tim, the last of all. Spirit, said Scrooge, with an interest he had never felt before. Tell me if Tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat, replied the ghost, in the poor chimney corner and a crutch without an owner, carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No, said Scrooge, no, oh, no, kind spirit, say he will be spared. If these shadows remain unaltered in the future, none other of my race, returned the ghost, will find him here. What then? If he be like to die, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Man, if man you be in heart, forbear that wicked cant until you have discovered what the surplus is and where it is. Will you decide what men shall live and what men shall die? It may be that in the sight of heaven you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child. Oh, God, to hear the insect on the leaf pronouncing on the too much life among his hungry brothers in the dust. Scrooge bent before the ghost's rebuke and trembling cast his eye upon the ground. But he raised his eyes speedily on hearing his own name. Mr. Scrooge, said Bob, I'll give you Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast. The founder of the feast indeed, cried Mrs. Cratchit, reddening. I wish I had him here. I'd give him a feast of my mind to feast upon, and I hope he'd have a good appetite for it. My dear, said Bob, the children, Christmas Day. It should be Christmas Day, I am sure, said she, on which one drinks the health of such an odious, stingy, hard, unfeeling man as Mr. Scrooge. You know he is, Robert. Nobody knows it better than you do, poor fellow. My dear... Christmas Day. I'll drink his health for your sake and the day's. Not for his. Long life to him. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. He'll be very merry and very happy. I have no doubts. And so that scene ended. And Scrooge, having much to think about, was borne back towards his house. But before reaching it, he met to his great surprise... The last of the spirits. The last of the spirits. A phantom which slowly, gravely, silently approached. When it came near him, Scrooge bent down upon his knee, for in the very air through which this spirit moved, it seemed to scatter gloom and mystery. It was shrouded in a deep black garment which concealed its head its face, its form, and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. But for this it would have been difficult to detach its figure from the night and separate it from the darkness by which it was surrounded. I am in the presence of the ghost of Christmas yet to come, said Scrooge. The spirit did not answer, but pointed onward with its hand. You are about to show me shadows of the things that have not happened, but will happen in the time before us. Scrooge pursued, is that so, spirit? The upper portion of the garment was contracted for an instant in its folds, as if the spirit had inclined its head. That was the only answer he received. Lead on, lead on. The night is waning fast, said Scrooge, and it is precious time to me, I know. Lead on, spirit. And led him on. Led him on into the dark city, or rather the city seemed to spring up about them and encompass them of its own act. But there they were in the heart of it, the city, the business 
amongst the merchants who hurried up and down and chinked the money in their pockets and conversed in groups and looked at their watches and spoke. No, said a great fat man with a monstrous chin. I didn't know much about it. I only know he's dead. When did he die? Last night, I believe. Well, what was the matter with him? I thought he'd never die. God knows. What have you done with his money? I haven't heard. Left it to his company, perhaps. He hasn't left it to me. That's what I know. Ha! Uh, it's likely to be a very cheap funeral, said the same speaker. But upon my life, I don't know if anybody uh, would want to go to it. I don't know anybody who would. Suppose we make up a party and volunteer. I don't mind going if a lunch is provided, but I must be fed if I make one. Prah. Well, I am the most disinterested among you, after all. But I never wear black gloves and I never eat lunch. But I'll offer to go if anybody else will. When I come to think of it, I'm not at all sure that I wasn't his own, only most particular friend, for we used to stop and speak whenever we met. Bye-bye. And then, to our house, Scrooge had already seen, and they entered, and there was a small company about the fire, and Scrooge recognised the company, and he feared the worst. Poor Bob and his wife sitting about the fire, talking, the girls and the mother working away at their sewing. Bob told them of the extraordinary kindness of Mr. Scrooge's nephew, whom he had scarcely seen but once, and who, meeting him in the street that day and seeing that he looked a little, just a little down, you know, said Bob, inquired what had happened to distress him. On which, said Bob, for he's the pleasantest spoken gentleman you ever heard, I told him. I'm heartily sorry for it, Mr. Cratchit, he said, and heartily sorry for your good wife. By the by, how he ever knew that, I don't know. Knew what, my dear? Why, that you were a good wife, replied Bob. Everybody knows that, said Peter. Very well observed, me boy, cried Bob. I hope they do. Heartily sorry, he said, if you're a good wife. If I can be of service to you in any way, he said, that's where I live, and he gave me a card. Do come to me. No, it wasn't, cried Bob, for the sake of anything he might be able to do for us so much as for his kind way. It was quite delightful. It really seemed as if he'd, if he'd known our tiny Tim and felt with us. I'm sure he's a good soul, said Mrs. Gretchen. You would never be sure of it, my dear, if you saw and spoke to him. I shouldn't be at all surprised, Mark, when I say if he got Peter a better job. Only hear that, Peter. Get along with you, retorted Peter, grinning. It's just as likely as that. One of these days, well, there's plenty of time for that, my dear. But however and whenever we part from one another, I'm sure we shall none of us forget poor tiny Tim, shall we? Or this first parting that there was among us. Never, father cried they all. And I know, said Bob, I know, my dears, that when we recollect how patient and how mild he was, although he was a, a little, little child, we shall not quarrel easily among ourselves and forget poor tiny Tim in doing it. Never, father, they all cried again. I'm very happy, said Bob, I'm very happy. Mrs. Cratchit kissed him, his daughters kissed him, the two young Cratchits kissed him, and Peter and himself shook hands. Spirit of tiny Tim Thy childish essence was from God. Spectre, said Scrooge, something informs me that our parting moment is at hand. I know it, but I know not how. Tell me, what man was that they were talking about in the street? The man they said was dead. The ghost of Christmas yet to come conveyed him as before, though at a different time, he thought. Indeed, there seemed no order in these latter visions, save that they were in the future, into the resorts of businessmen, but showed him not himself. Indeed, the spirit did not stay for anything, but went straight on as to the end just now desired until besought by Scrooge to tarry for a moment. 
Uh, this court, said Scrooge, through which we hurry now, is where my place of occupation is, and has been for a length, length of time. Uh, I see the house. Let me behold what I shall be in days to come. The spirit stopped. The hand was pointed elsewhere. The house is yonder, Scrooge exclaimed. Why do you point away? The inexorable finger underwent no change. Scrooge hastened to the window of his office and looked in. It was an office still, but not his. The furniture was not the same, and the figure in the chair was not himself. The phantom pointed as before. He joined it once again and wondered why and whither he had gone, accompanied it until they reached an iron gate. He paused to look around before entering. A churchyard. Here, then, the wretched man whose name he had now to learn lay underneath the ground. It was a worthy place, walled in by houses overrun by grass and weeds, the growth of vegetation's death, not life, choked up with too much burying, fat with repleted appetite, a worthy place. The spirit stood among the graves and pointed down to one. He advanced towards it, trembling. The phantom was exactly as it had been, but he dreaded that he saw new meaning in its solemn shape. Before I draw nearer to that stone to which you point, said Scrooge, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of the things that will be, or are they the shadows of the things that may be only? Still the ghost pointed downward to the grave by which it stood. Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends to which, if persevered in, they must lead, said Scrooge. But if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus with what you show me. The spirit was immovable as ever. Scrooge crept towards it, trembling as he went, and following the finger, read upon the stone of the neglected grave the name Ebenezer Scrooge. Aye, that man they were talking about, he cried upon his knees. The finger pointed from the grave to him, and back again. No, spirit, oh, no, no. The finger still was there. Spirit, hear me, I am not the man I was. I will not be the man I must have been, but for this intercourse. Why show me this if I am past all hope? For the first time, the hand appeared to shake. Good spirit, good spirit, as down upon the ground he fell before it. Your nature intercedes for me and pities me. Assure me that I yet may change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. The kind hand trembled. I will honour Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. Oh, tell me I may sponge away the writing on this stone. In his agony, he caught the spectral hand. It sought to free itself, but he was strong in his entreaty and detained it. The spirit strongest yet repulsed him. Holding up his hands in a last prayer to have his fate reversed, he saw an alteration in the phantom's hood and dress. It shrunk, collapsed, and dwindled down into a bedpost. Yes, and the bedpost was his own. The bed was his own. The room was his own. Best and happiest of all, the time before him was his own, to make amends in. I will live in the past, the present, and the future, Scrooge repeated as he scrambled out of bed. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. Oh, Jacob Marley, heaven and the Christmas time be praised for this. I say it on my knees, old Jacob, on my knees. He was so fluttered and so glowing with his good intentions that his broken voice would scarcely answer to his call. He had been sobbing violently in his conflict with the spirit, and his face was wet with tears. They are not torn down, said Scrooge, folding one of his bed curtains in his arms. They are not 
torn down and sold with all my furniture, all my possessions, and nothing is gone, all is here, I am here, the shadows of the things that would have been may be dispelled, they will be, I know they will. His hands were busy with his garments all this time, turning them inside out, putting them on upside down, tearing them, mislaying them, making them parties to every kind of extravagance. I don't know what to do, cried Scrooge, laughing and crying in the same breath, and making a perfect lark on of himself with his stockings. I'm as light as a feather, I'm as happy as an angel, I'm as merry as a schoolboy, I'm as giddy as a drunken man. A merry Christmas to everybody, a happy new year to all the world. Hello there, oop, hello! He had frisked into the sitting room and was now standing there perfectly winded. That's the saucepan that the gruel was in, cried Scrooge, starting off again and going round the fireplace. There's the door by which the ghost of Jacob Marley entered. There's the corner where the ghost of Christmas present sat. There's the window where I saw the wandering spirits. It's all right, it's all true, it all happened. Ha ha! Really, for a man who had been out of practice for so many years, it was a splendid laugh, a most illustrious laugh, the father of a long, long line of brilliant laughs. I don't know what day of the month it is, cried Scrooge. I don't know how long I've been among the spirits. I, I don't know anything. I'm quite a baby. Never mind. I don't care. I'd rather be a baby. Hello. Oop. Hello there. He was checked by his transports by the churches, ringing out the lustiest peals he had ever heard. Clash, clang, hammer, ding, dong, bell, bell, ding, dong, hammer, clang, clash. Oh, glorious, glorious. Running into the window, he opened it and put out his head. No fog, no mist. Clear, bright, jovial, stirring, cold, cold piping for the blood to dance to, golden sunlight, heavenly sky, sweet fresh air, merry bells, oh, glorious, glorious. What's today? cried Scrooge, calling downward to a boy in Sunday clothes, who perhaps had loitered in to look about him. Eh? returned the boy, with all his might of wonder. What's today, my fine fellow? said Scrooge. Today? cried the boy, Christmas day. It's Christmas Day, said Scrooge to himself. I haven't missed it. The spirits have done it all in one night. They can do anything they like. Of course they can. Of course they can. Hello, my fine fellow. Hello? Do you know the poulterers in the next street but one at the corner? I should hope I did. An intelligent boy, a remarkable boy. Do you know whether they've sold the prize turkey that was hanging up there? And not the little prize turkey, the big one. What, the one as big as me? What a delightful boy. It's a pleasure to talk to him. Yes, my buck. It's hanging there now, replied the boy. Is it? Go and buy it. What? No, no, I'm in earnest. Go and buy it and tell them to bring it here that I may give them the direction where to take it. Come back with a man and I'll give you a shilling. Come back with him in less than five minutes and I'll give you half a crown. The boy was off like a shot. He must have had a steady hand at a trigger who could have got a shot off half so fast. I'll send it to Bob Cratchit's, whispered Scrooge, rubbing his hands and splitting it with a laugh. Uh, I, he shan't know who sends it. It's twice the size of Tiny Tim. Joe Miller never made such a joke as sending it to Bob's will be. The hand in which he wrote the address was not a steady one, but write it he did somehow and went downstairs to open the door, ready for the coming of the poulterer's men. As he stood there, awaiting his arrival, the knocker caught his eye. I shall love it as long as I live, cried Scrooge, patting it with his hand. I scarcely ever looked at it before. What an honest expression it has in its face. It's a wonderful knocker. Here's a turkey. Hello, how are you? Merry Christmas. It was a turkey. He never could have stood upon his legs, that bird. He would have snapped them off short in a minute like sticks of sealing wax. Why, it's impossible to carry that to Camden Town, said Scrooge. You must have a cab. The chuckle with which he said this, and the chuckle with which he paid for the turkey, and the chuckle with which he paid for the cab, and the chuckle with which he recompensed the boy, were only to be exceeded by the chuckle with which he sat down breathless in his chair and chuckled and chuckled and chuckled till he cried. <coughs> Ah, what a day, he cried, coughing and chuckling together. Shaving was not an easy task, 
for his hand continued to shake very much, and shaving requires attention, even when you don't dance while you're at it. But if he'd cut the end of his nose off, he would have put a piece of sticking plaster over it and been quite satisfied. He dressed himself all in his best and at last got out into the streets. The people were by this time pouring forth as he had seen them with the ghost of Christmas present, and walking with his hands behind him, Scrooge regarded everyone with a delighted smile. He looked so irresistibly pleasant, in a word, that three or four good-humoured fellows said, Good morning, sir. Merry Christmas to you. And Scrooge said often afterwards that of all the blithe sounds he had ever heard, those were the blithest in his ears. He had not gone far when, coming on towards him, he beheld a portly gentleman, a gentleman he remembered from some weeks past. He'd walked into his counting-house and asked for some money and said, Scrooge and Marley's, I believe, money for the poor. And Scrooge had refused him. It sent a pang across his heart to think how this old gentleman would look upon him when they met. But he knew what path lay straight before him, and he took it. My dear sir, said Scrooge, quickening his pace and taking the old gentleman by both his hands. How do you do? I hope you succeeded in your attempts to get some money to help the poor. It was very kind of you. A Merry Christmas to you, sir. Mr. Scrooge? Uh, yes, sir, Scrooge, that is my name, and I fear it may not be pleasant to you. Allow me to ask your pardon, and will you have the goodness? Scrooge whispered in his ear. Lord, bless me, said the gentleman, as if his breath were taken away. My, my dear Mr. Scrooge, all that, are you serious? If you please, said Scrooge, not a farthing less. A great many back payments are included in it, I assure you. Will you do me that favour? My dear sir, said the other, shaking hands with him. I don't know what to, to say to such munificence. Don't say anything, please, retorted Scrooge. Come and see me. Will you come and see me? Tomorrow I will, cried the old gentleman. Tomorrow first thing. And it was clear he meant to do it. Thank you, said Scrooge. I'm much obliged to you. I thank you fifty times. Bless you. He walked about the streets and watched the people hurrying to and fro and patted children on the head and questioned beggars and looked down into the kitchens of houses and up to the windows and found that everything could yield him pleasure. He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything could give him so much happiness. In the afternoon, he turned his steps towards his nephew's house. He passed the door a dozen times before he had the courage to go up and knock, but he made a dash and did it. Is your master at home, my dear? said Scrooge to the girl. Nice girl, very. Yes, sir. Where is he, my love? said Scrooge. He's in the dining room, sir, along with mistress. I'll show you upstairs, if you please. Thank ye. He knows me, said Scrooge, with his hand already on the dining room lock. I'll go in here, my dear. He turned it gently and sidled his face in round the door. They were looking at the table, which was spread out in great array, for these young housekeepers are always nervous on such points and like to see that everything is right. Fred, said Scrooge. Dear heart alive, how his niece by marriage started. Scrooge had forgotten for the moment about her sitting in the corner there, or he wouldn't have done it on any account. Why, bless my soul, cried Freddy. Who's that? It's I, your Uncle Scrooge. I've come to dinner. Will you let me in, Fred? Let him in. It's a mercy he didn't shake his arm off. He was at home in five minutes. Nothing could be heartier. His niece looked just the same, and all the friends of his nephew and his niece and the plump sister who we'd seen before from a distance, everyone who came, a wonderful party, wonderful games, wonderful unanimity, wonderful happiness. But he was early at the office next morning. Oh, he was early there. If he could only be there first and catch Bob Cratchit coming late. That was the thing he had set his heart upon. And he did it, yes, he did. The clock struck nine, no Bob. Quarter past, no Bob. He was full 18 minutes and a half behind his time. Scrooge sat with his door wide open that he might see him come into the tank. His hat was off before he opened the door, his comforter too. He was on his stool in a jiffy, driving away with his pen as if he were trying to overtake nine o'clock. Hello, growled Scrooge in his accustomed voice, as near as he could feign it. What do you mean by coming here at this time of day? I'm very sorry, sir, said Bob. I haven't met behind my time. 
You are, repeated Scrooge. Yes, I think you are. Step this way, sir, if you please. It's only once a year, sir, repeated Bob, appearing from the tank. It shall not be repeated. I was making rather merry yesterday, sir. Now I'll tell you what, my friend, said Scrooge. I am not going to stand this sort of thing any longer. And therefore, he continued, leaping from his stool and giving Bob such a dig in the waistcoat that he staggered back into the tank again, and therefore I am about to raise your salary. Bob trembled and got a little nearer to the ruler. He had a momentary idea of knocking Scrooge down with it, holding him and calling to the people in the court for help in a straight waistcoat. A Merry Christmas, Bob, said Scrooge, with an earnestness that could not be mistaken, as he clapped him on the back. A Merry Christmas, my Bob, my good fellow, a merrier one than I've given you for many a year. I'll raise your salary and endeavour to assist your struggling family, and we'll discuss your affairs this very afternoon over a Christmas bowl of smoking punch, Bob. Make up the fires and buy another coal scuttle before you dot another eye, Bob Cratchit. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew or any other good old city, town or borough in the good old world. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh and little heeded them, for he was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened on this globe for good at which some people did not have their fill of laughter in the outset. And knowing that such as these would be blind anyway, he thought it quite as well that they should wrinkle up their eyes in grins as have the malady in less attractive forms. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. He had no further intercourse with spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle, and ever afterwards. And ever afterwards it was said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that truly be said of us and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, every one. You've been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. For more information about Anthony Burgess and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.